Week two of our separated Sunday. Uh, there are many difficult aspects to this, but to me the greatest difficulty is not being present with my church family on Sunday morning. Nevertheless, I can rejoice in this, knowing that God is still good and He provides for ways to connect. And for all my complaining over the years of the evils of social media and the intrusion of technology into our lives, it's been through these things that we are able to uh, connect with one another and to be present with each other. And for that, I am very grateful. This time I'd like to turn to the text. We're continuing in the Gospel of Mark. And in God's providence, over these past couple of weeks, we've been reminded of Christ's powerful presence. First, in his calming of the seas. Second, in casting out of the demons. And third, today, in the healing of a woman with a bleeding disorder and in raising a little girl from the dead. I can't think of a more timely encouragement to us. So with that, I'd like to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We'll be reading Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. Mark 5, 21 to 43. You can follow along with me in the bulletin that was provided for you, or you can turn there in your Bibles. Hear God's Word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd, and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a, common, a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. May God bless the reading of his word, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for your tender mercy. We thank you for the great love with which you love us. Uh, We thank you that you come to us and are present with us. And we ask that by your spirit, though we're far from each other, that we would know your intimate presence with us by your spirit. For we ask these things through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In his fantastical work, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis portrays hell as a place that is ethereal, ephemeral, has no substance, no physicality to it. But not only does it not have substance, but people, the longer they live in that place, the farther they move apart from one another. So that the oldest people in hell live millions of miles away from their neighbor. Uh, I've been contemplating these two things quite a bit since we've been relegated to live apart from one another. That is, I've been thinking a lot about lack of substance or realness and lack of presence. Um, I feel this particularly right now as I preach to a computer screen. Uh, This act of preaching seems less substantial, less real, because, well, it's not done in anyone's presence. And Lewis's vision of hell, though maybe somewhat fantastical and, you know, maybe not totally orthodox, gets at a truth. We are physical beings and we are relational beings. We're made for physical presence with one another. Now, Lewis noted that what drove people apart in that hellscape was their their conflict with each other, the, the inherent conflict that comes with relating to each other. In other words, people quarreled, and because they could easily erect houses, because those houses were made of nothing, kind of reminds me of like playing Minecraft or something, um, they could erect houses really quickly, so whenever they had a conflict, they just moved farther and farther apart from one another. And and saying that, I, I fully realize that for some of us, to be physically present with certain people can be hard or painful. And I also realize that solitude can give us joy. That's good but only for a while. It gives us a moment to retreat and recharge, but just a moment. For most of us, being physically distant from one another, having virtual chats and phone conversations, leaves us longing for something more, something more intimate, something more connected, something more tangible and physical and real does for me anyway. Because I think that's what we're made for. We're made for physical presence. Our text this morning is all about the physical presence of Jesus with his people. And what makes Jesus' presence so comforting is that when he draws near in this account, he draws near with tenderness and mercy. He's overflowing with grace and love. And in this tender mercy, he restores the physical as well as the spiritual. And I I want to dwell on this thought, how, how Jesus moves towards us with tender mercy, restoring us physically as well as spiritually. How those two things are related. And we'll, we'll look at this in three parts. The first part I want to think about is just the merciful presence 
of Jesus. We've seen the powerful presence of Jesus over the course of the last two weeks. <coughs> he spoke and calmed the seas. He cast out demons and exerted his power and authority over the evil one. And once again, the, the powerful presence of Jesus is seen as he heals the sick and raises the dead. And, and I want to circle back around to this powerful or glorious presence of Jesus when we conclude. But for now, I want us to not only see his power and glory, but I want us to see his tender mercy. And in particular, I want us to think about his merciful presence, that, that sort of undeserved presence. There are two stories in our text, the main story and a side story in the middle. And the story of a prominent synagogue ruler named Jairus and his dying daughter, and a story of a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And these two stories are intertwined. They're inextricable, and they, they show us the range of Christ's merciful presence. But as we turn to the text, we see first the merciful presence just generally with the crowd. To begin, we find Jesus returning from the other side of the lake, the Gentile region of the Decapolis. Remember, he was over there and he cast out the demon out of the Gentile. But he's now back over on the Jewish side of the lake in Galilee, likely on the outskirts of Capernaum, where he'd been ministering previously. Maybe the crowds never went home. Maybe they waited for the return of Jesus. Maybe the lookouts cried out as their boats approached and the people gathered. Or maybe they came after they had landed. It doesn't matter. When Jesus arrived, he was soon surrounded by the crowd. The people wanted to be close to Jesus. After all, he was the man who performed great miracles, the teacher who had taught with authority, the one who had healed the sick and the lame and cast out demons. There was an intense desire to be close to him, to have his glory rub off. The text later says that the crowd pressed in around him or was crushing him. Um, I've had the occasion to work with kids over the years, and sometimes while playing games with little kids, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I, I, I found myself being jostled about and tripped up because the kids want to get as close to me as they can. Every kid wants to just be right up on me. And if you're playing with kids, it can be overwhelming. Just take a step back, just take a step back, we'll all have a turn, etc. You know what it's like to be pressed in on. We've all seen famous people being ushered through a pressing crowd on TV or something like that, and their their body men kind of try to push push people aside as the crowd gets closer than they'd like. I kind of envision Jesus' disciples doing a little bit of crowd control, right? And it'd be like Peter's like, all right, step back. Here comes Jesus. Let him through. But what strikes me is that Jesus enters the crowd. He goes to them. Despite the discomfort and the difficulty, Jesus walks among the people. He is present physically with them. Because why? Well, he cares for them. The second thing we notice is that Christ is mercifully present with high and low alike. There's a huge contrast here between Jairus and the woman who is bleeding for 12 years. They both come to Jesus and press in on him. But you get the feeling that the, the synagogue ruler was able to easily get to Jesus. Maybe he had his 
own entourage. We know that folks came from the house later on to, to tell him about his daughter, but maybe he had a few folks with him as well. Uh, but anyway, he comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet right in front, front of him and addresses him. There's a sense in which he was able to approach Jesus. The woman, on the other hand, is unclean. She avoided touching people all the time and likely usually avoided people altogether. I envision her thinking, okay, here's my chance. There's a gap. I can come up behind and there's this little window and I can, can run up and if I can just grab his garment, his tunic, I can be healed. There was no entourage. She had no people. She was an outcast. And yet she wanted to be near Jesus. High and low, everyone wanted to be in his presence. And Jesus wanted to be in theirs. He doesn't distinguish. I think that's very common for us to divide and distinguish those in one class from those in another. And in our pride and resentment, we, we often float the other way. We hate on the rich and the powerful, and we despise the poor and the lowly. Jesus doesn't distinguish. He doesn't. Sure, at certain points, he calls everyone to, to repent and believe and challenges their idols. But Jesus is for the needy. He's for the sick. He's for the dying. He's for those that understand their own frailty and brokenness. He does not distinguish between low and high. And Jesus is present with them. Jairus comes to him, and it says that he fell at his feet. <laughs> We've seen this over and over again in the gospel. People falling at Jesus' feet. Demons falling at Jesus' feet. Everyone falls at Jesus' feet. Well, of course, he's the Lord of glory after all, isn't he? But Jairus comes and falls at his feet as a man who is at his wit's end. His little daughter is dying. There's an idiom here used here for this idea that the daughter is dying. It doesn't just say she's dying. It says that she has come to the last. Now, we have a, we have a saying that goes something like this. So-and-so is nearing the end. Uh, that's like a delicate way or delicate euphemism for dying. That is not what this father is saying. He isn't trying to soften the news. He's desperate. He's falling at Jesus' feet because he's desperate. He is saying she's at her last moment. She's almost gone. Oh, Lord, come quickly. There was nothing else that he could, that he could do, nothing else that could be done. There was no time left. Jesus, if he were to come, have to come now. And what Jairus asks is that he would come and lay hands on her, to touch her, to be physically present with her, to heal her. Part of Jesus' merciful presence is physical. Living this side of the cross and glory, and that in between the cross and glory. I think it is difficult for us to grasp the significance of Jesus' physical presence. Now, the disciples at this point saw Jesus 
corruptible body. They, they saw the body that would be crucified and buried, that new fatigue and pain, and then finally death. The presence they had of Jesus at this moment, though significant, was not ultimate. Nevertheless, even as fully man in a corruptible body, his deity and glory were manifest as he pushed back against that corruption of the fall. He healed the sick and the lame and the deaf and the blind, and he even raises the dead. Eventually, he went to death. He went to this deathbed of this little girl. He was present with her. He takes her by the hand and he speaks to her and she comes to life, physical life. This is what the merciful presence of Christ does. It brings life. As I think about this uh, pandemic, as it ravages the world, and as it separates us one from another, and as death seems more in our face at the moment, though it's always there, it's always present, I can't help but long to see and be with Jesus, to know the transforming power of His presence, that He might take away the corruption of my flesh, of our flesh, that we might dwell together with Him, and, and so be like Him, not just ephemeral spirits, not, not simply that, not with bodies that are bound for the grave, but to become real, physical, glorious, incorruptible persons. Now, I don't have the virus. At least I don't think I do. I have to admit, I did randomly check my temperature the other day. I was fine. A little bit of fear and anxiety there. But I am corruptible. The Lord, in His providence, has pulled back the veil at this moment in time that we might see more clearly as humanity our true condition. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that our outer self is wasting away. I need, you need, the merciful presence of Jesus Christ. Ever since Adam first rebelled against God and subsequently as humanity continued to rebel against God, we as humanity are wasting away. We're dying. We're going from dust to dust. But there's hope. John says something quite astounding in his first epistle. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That's, a, that's good news. He goes on, he says, But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. Did you catch that? When we come to face our glorious Savior, when we see Him, we shall be like Him. Body, soul, renewed. The presence of Jesus transforms us 
completely. Friends, it's not wrong for us to long for the physical presence of Jesus, to cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus, be near me, make me whole again, take away the sting and pain of this corruption. Though we don't see him physically present now, nevertheless, he is still present with us by his Spirit. Paul wrote in that passage of 2 Corinthians that I quoted just a minute ago, that our, that our outer selves are wasting away. He said this far more glorious truth. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, substance. That's substance. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, to this corrupting world, corrupt world, but to the things that are unseen, to the glorious hope of a resurrected body, that for the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are, un- the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lewis described it this way in The Great Divorce. He says, we become more real. I love that, that picture of real. More of what we're meant to be. You see, even now, right now, believers, we're becoming more real day by day by His merciful presence, by His Spirit dwelling in us. But when we see Him, when we see Him in the the flesh in His glorious presence, When we see Him at that time, we will become who we really are. Not less ephemeral, not other, but greater and glorious. Just like our Savior, without sickness or sin or suffering or pain or loneliness or sorrow. And will be transformed, glorious incorruptible bodies given to us by the merciful, glorious presence of Jesus. Spend some time on the merciful presence of Jesus, but secondly, I want to think about the tender presence of Jesus. To be tender towards someone is to show gentleness and concern. We see this all throughout the text. We see it with the crowds as he enters in. He didn't push them away. We see it with Jairus and his willingness to go with Jesus. And and we see it at the very end of the text. One of the most beautiful pictures. Jairus' daughter is raised up. And as soon as she's awake, Jesus says, Oh, she's hungry. Get her something to eat. But I think we see it most poignantly with the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Mark stops the story about Jairus and his daughter to relay this account. For one, one of the reasons it's told is that the delay itself caused enough time for the little girl to die. It was pertinent to this whole narrative. But secondly, there is a connection between the little girl and this woman. No, we don't have any indication that they knew each other. In fact, we aren't given a name of this woman. And 
She was not deathly ill, at least as far as we can tell. After all, she lived with her disease for a long time, though she was getting worse, the text says. But she's lived for 12 years with it. But here we begin to see an interesting connection. 12 years. 12 years. That was the age of this little girl. Maybe this little girl had suffered those 12 years too. Maybe they shared that. We don't know. But at 12 years, this little girl was dead. And at 12 years of suffering, this poor woman was also at her end. No doctor's treatment would help. In fact, they only caused her more suffering and pain. Though she was walking about with breath, she lived a lonely life of exile, away from the rest of the community. She was ceremonially unclean, unable to engage in the life of the community. For her, it was like death. I've read a few stories of folks that have self-quarantined. One, one fellow was a reporter, and upon coming home to a wife who had some immune compromise issues and their kids, when he came home to them, uh, he was forced to live alone, to sequester himself, to quarantine himself uh, downstairs, I guess into a basement room. Uh, he ended up having his birthday alone. He had to Skype his birthday in. Uh, and they were living upstairs. He talked about hearing footsteps above him. And, of course, he talked about enjoying those chats and things through the computer and the phone. I was thinking about it. How long had it been? week? A few days? Twelve years of little to no human touch. Twelve years. Twelve years. It's the age of the entire life of this girl. For this woman, it must have been like death. Until she comes into contact with the tender presence of Jesus. She sneaks in. She reaches out. Maybe she believes that somehow his clothes magically heal. We don't, we don't know. But for whatever reason, she thinks, if I can only just touch his garment, I'll be made well. We're told that Jesus felt the power go out from him. It's a little hard to understand all that's going on. He is certainly not like a magical talisman. If you simply touch him, you receive the benefits of his grace. Mystics over the centuries have um, collected relics of Jesus and his disciples in hope that some residual power might be retained within it. But that's not how Jesus' power works. After all, plenty of people had touched him. That's uh, the, the, the complaint of the disciples when he says, Who touched me? He's like, What are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. Of course, we know that Jesus was stripped, that he was beaten, that lots were cast for his clothes. Jesus' power went out from him at this moment, not because of some magic in his clothes that were connected to him, but it went out for him from him because of his tenderness and mercy for the sick and the sinner, and the broken, and that, and those that know their desperate need for Him. 
Now, he didn't know who it was that had touched him. So he asked, he said, who? And his disciples were dumbfounded. What are you talking about? Everybody's touching you, Lord. But see, it was his tenderness and his concern for her that he just couldn't let that go. He, he wanted to know who it, is. who it is. Who is it that touched me? Because he wanted to address her. He wanted to comfort her. He wanted to bless her. He wanted to make her whole. And so she overhears and she comes forward. Fearful and anxious. She too falls at his feet. Uncertain if he would be angry that she presumed upon him and grabbed his cloak. A couple weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, the Pope caught up some bad publicity, if you'll remember, uh, when a woman reached out and grabbed him. And he turned around and he slapped her. Shock. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a person who everybody wants to touch and grab. So uh, maybe there's some <laughs> reasonableness to his frustration. But nevertheless, Jesus was in a similar situation. And he doesn't slap her. He doesn't rebuke her. No, he doesn't do any of that. He, he calls her daughter. She wasn't an outcast. But he says, you're a family member. And then he encourages her in faith. He says, your faith is what has healed you. And then he blesses her with peace. He says, go in peace. And it wasn't some traditional Jewish greeting. It wasn't peace be gone. It was a heavenly peace, a transforming, tender peace that only can come from God. He made her whole. You see, Jesus saw her for who she really was. He saw her pain and her sorrow. He saw her desperation and her fear. He saw her faith. And he was tender toward her. Friends, do you know the tender presence of Jesus? He knows our infirmities, our weaknesses, our sin. He knows our sorrows and griefs. And what He offers to us is nothing less than the peace of God. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that was wrought through His willingness to come in the flesh and to be present with us and become like us in every way yet without sin and to lay His life down and to be stripped naked and to be hung on a cross and die that our sin and shame and uncleanness might be done away with so that He might call us children of God. Friends, this is the tender presence of the Lord. Finally, and in conclusion, I want us to think about this tender mercy, but I want us to think about it tied to glory. The glorious tender mercy of Christ. The friends of Jairus say it's too late. Too late. Don't bother this man. Don't bother the teacher. Your daughter's dead. But Jesus, with that tenderness and mercy, turns to Jairus, who has just witnessed the wonder of this woman being healed, and he says, Don't, don't be afraid. 
Don't fear. Believe. Now Jesus took only Jairus and Peter, James, and John because what was about to happen, Jesus wasn't ready to share this in its fullness with everyone. The time had not yet come to reveal His glory to everyone. But He did show it to Jairus, to his wife, to his daughter, and to these three disciples. He wanted them to catch a glimpse that they might recount the story as, as the story went out, as it became known. He wasn't ready to reveal himself fully. This is a theme we'll see in the Gospel of Mark. But Jesus is preparing for a time when his glory will be fully revealed. But until that time, he takes these, these few folks and he goes to the house of Jairus. And when he arrives at the house, there's professional mourners. They're already present. Uh, this was common. Even the, even the lowest of the low type of person would get professional mourners. Maybe only a couple. It's likely there were many here because he was a prominent figure. And they were wailing and crying and weeping and making a commotion. And so Jesus asks the question, why, why are you doing this? Why are you... Why are you crying? She's, she's just asleep. She's not dead. Now, there are some who've tried to argue that maybe this is real, that the girl really wasn't dead. She was just sleeping. Jesus healed a lot of people, but raising somebody from the dead is a whole other thing. Um, but I think we can, we can dismiss that simply on the text alone because uh, the scoffing of the professional mourners was enough. They, they laughed at Jesus. Here were professional mourners, people who spent their days around dead people. They knew when a body was dead. And they laughed at Jesus. They had no real tenderness in their tears. Those were perfunctory tears. Just the thing that you do. Not so Jesus. He shoos them away, he shoos them out of the house, and he shuts the door and he goes to the bedside with mom and dad and these three disciples. And he reaches out and he touches this little girl. He's present with her. He was tender toward her. And he took her by the hand and he spoke to her saying, little girl, little girl. And he said it in common language, in words she understood. I say to you, rise. Rise. This moment, the glory of the Lord in His tenderness and mercy is revealed. And it's revealed to this family that a glimpse, a little picture of the resurrection but friends, this was just a little picture. This was just a, a little sign to say, don't worry, I'm with you. Later Jesus will say, I am with you to the very end of the age. When Jesus rose again, he left his disciples and said, I will never leave you, never forsake you. He's present with us today. His Spirit's at work. The resurrection is at work in transforming us 
from one little bit to another bit that we might look more and more like Jesus, one degree of glory to another. But there is a day when our bodies will be resurrected just like this little girl when Jesus will take us by the hand and lift us up and make us who we are, glorious, just like Himself, because He is glorious. He is full of tenderness and mercy. And He takes that which is corruptible and makes it incorruptible. That which is marred and broken by the fall and sin and transformed it and makes it whole. Oh, what glorious hope we have in the resurrection, even as we are distant from one another, even as we're not bodily present, and we have to deal with computer screens and the ephemeral nature of this world, we are reminded that this is just a bit. This isn't the real thing. It doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory that is going to be revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the hope of the Gospel. We thank You for the hope of the resurrection. We thank You that You are present with us by Spirit and that You are returning again. And that You are going to transform us. You're going to make us like Yourself that when we see You, we will be like You. Oh Lord, come quickly. But until then, give us strength. Encourage our hearts. Remind us of Your tender mercy. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.